we ran it on QI a few years ago. Yeah. Um, which was, there's no such thing as a fish. Yeah, there's no such thing as a fish. No, seriously, it's in the Oxford Dictionary of Underwater Life. It says it right there, first paragraph, no such thing as a fish. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, I'm sitting here with three other QI elves, James Harkin, Andy Murray, and on fact-checking duties this week, Ann Miller. And once again, we're going to go over our favourite facts from the last seven days. Joining us today, we have a special guest, uh, a comedian and friend of ours, Eric Lampere. Hello. How you doing, mate? I'm very good. Thanks. So Eric is a—he's a good friend of ours. He's a—he's a comedian. Uh, he recently, as a stand-up, opened for Eddie Izzard in French. It was a French gig, and Eric did uh, his set in French entirely. He's also going to star in an upcoming movie called Amsterdam. Yeah, when's that's that right. out? Yeah, uh, I, I think end of this year. I think. Oh, yeah. what's it about? So it's not bad. Are you it's to like tell a us? fairy tale world. Uh, uh, it is a stoner film with that name. Uh, yeah, I'm quite. Ex- I am excited. You know, based in Netherlands. Uh, yeah, so it's in Amsterdam, yeah, oh. and uh, I can't really reveal too much. I have a fact about Amsterdam. I'd oh, yeah? Like to hear it. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. It was about, um, I don't know, 80 years or so ago, but there was a fog so bad that 29 people fell into the canals in a single night. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, let's start with fact number one. Uh, we're going to start with our special guest, Eric. Uh, oui, bonjour. Uh, right, so... Um, <laughs> In 1923, jockey Frank Hayes won a race in Belmont Park in New York, despite being dead. Wow. Yeah, okay, explain, so the, explain that one. Yeah, so no, he, I he think started gonna... alive, right? <laughs> he started alive. Oh. So he died mid-race? Mid-race, yeah. Well, okay, give us more of the story. Well, basically, he suffered from a heart attack uh, mid-race, oh. uh, but he was straddled... Nice and strong in the saddle, and the horse won. But how does... Is there a seatbelt? Presumably he keeled over, right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, like in that movie Shane, sort of like slumped over kind of thing. So he's he's got his feet nice and strapped in, and, you know, you've got your hands as well sort of tied around the... The reins. The reins. Did anyone, did anyone notice during the race, or was it only discovered after he had won? He was probably the yeah, only the one... The horse just kept running more and more laps. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably the only one not hitting the horse. Yeah. And yet, yeah. And yet still won. What does that say about cruelty? Yeah, this, um, this horse, am I right in saying it was called Sweet Kiss? Sweet, sweet kiss of death. Sweet kiss of death. That's what they nicknamed it afterwards. Is it? Yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> this is an interesting uh, link. Your dad, Eric, is a jockey, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I thought... I mean, I only found out this, this fact uh, this week. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, my dad is indeed uh-huh. a jockey. Because you're pretty tall, if you um, don't mind me saying. Yeah, just, uh, and, and I've got big gums as well, uh, which has <laughs> never helped. <laughs> you know, at, at school they'd be like, oh, well, clearly your dad's had sex with a horse. Like, it's not fair. Um, unfortunately, I'm hung like a human. So. <laughs> um, you know the way that um, jockeys sit, it's kind of like a crouched thing where they're leaning forward. Not the dead ones, the alive ones. Uh, this is called the monkey crouch, and it was invented by a guy called Todd Sloan in 1897. And what's interesting about it is no one uh, rode horses like that before in horse races, and when he invented that, horse race times and records improved by 5 to 7% in a single year. So he just completely changed the sport by deciding to crouch down and lean forward. No one had ever done it before. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's like the... Um, in The in, the, Yeah, in high yeah. jump. Yes. Yeah, I mean, right. that completely transformed the sport, didn't it? Yeah. 
we did a couple of years ago the um, the new way of throwing a javelin, which was invented very briefly in the 1930s, which oh, is yeah. to hold it by one end, swing around, and let go. The javelin? Uh, yeah, like throwing the hammer. Oh, and <laughs> it was banned almost immediately <laughs> for obvious reasons. But it did provide amazingly long javelin throws. In fact, to the extent that it could have been quite dangerous. A, because it goes too far and might hit spectators. And B, because... It's very hard to get it in exactly the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> Just get impaled yeah. spectators yeah. Isn't that incredible? A slight margin of error. Yeah. And, you've, yeah. and in, the, in the Paris Olympics in 1904? 1900? Um, Paris very, 1900, yeah. Paris 1900. People trained in the public parks, uh, javelins, and they, had oh, to, they were warned to be extra vigilant. Some, of them, some people trained at night, so there was less chance of hitting people, <laughs> but also more chance of hitting people. Yeah. <laughs> The interesting thing about javelins is that they make them um, less aerodynamic as the time goes on because the the length of a running track is always going to be about 100 metres. And so what they do is they have to make sure the javelin can't be thrown more than that. People get stronger and stronger and better and they get closer to 100 metres and then they always make the javelins a little bit worse so that people can't get that far. By the end, it'll just be like a toothpick. <laughs> a really heavy toothpick. <laughs> Wow, okay, so what year was that? The, the... Uh, it was uh, 1897 uh, when he discovered that idea. Okay, that's amazing. Um, it's an interesting um, thing when you start looking into what people have achieved once they've died. Um, there's a really, one of my favourite stories from uh, the Ig Nobel's world. Uh, we've had Mark Abrams, the founder, on, on a few podcasts ago, and he wrote a book years ago called The Ig Nobel Prizes 2, Why Chickens Prefer Beautiful Humans. And there's a fantastic story about a man called Lal Bihari, who in 1975, when he went to the bank to apply for a loan, he discovered that he'd been declared dead by his uncle, uh, who wanted to declare him dead in order to get the land rights for the farm that he owned. And he spent 19 years as a dead man trying to get recognized as a living man. Uh, and it just no one would recognize him. And he did incredible things, like he, he stood for parliament. He tried to get arrested countless times because if they arrested him, technically it meant he was alive. Yeah. So they couldn't arrest him. He would do all this stuff, and they were like, oh, we can't arrest you because you're dead. And so for 19 years, he stayed dead, technically, and finally got a court to overturn it. And he set up in, uh, in his town where he lived, and I think for all of India, uh, which is where he's from, um, a whole network and a group in support of people who have been declared dead who are in fact alive. Oh, I'd love to have that power. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's called the Association of Dead People that he created. And it was in uh, 1994 that yeah. he was finally proven to be alive. It's a massive problem as well. <laughs> in, in places where the paperwork often doesn't catch up with people's actual legal status or whether they're alive or not, that it, it happens a great deal. That's why there's a need for an association. You know? was, yeah, that in, yeah. was that in India? Yes, yeah. it was, yeah. Well, I do believe in reincarnation. That's why he was uh, born again, I guess. That's possible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let's go back to um, horse racing and yes. jockeys mm. and stuff like that. Um, and there's, um, a, There was a jockey, a very successful one, called Laffitt Pinkay Jr. And in order to keep his weight down, he would take a single peanut slice it into slivers and eat just half of it for lunch the dieting for uh, jockeys is actually mad so yeah. like me and my mum and my mum's French so we'd eat like so much we'd proper pig out and then my dad he'd, uh, he'd always eat salads and stuff and then I remember when we uh, were in South Africa for uh, one of his races and he covered himself in black bin bags right and just sellotaped it all the way up to his neck and then he pushed a wheelbarrow full of things and he ran around with the wheelbarrow around the field 
to lose the weight. And then I remember That's he amazing. took off all the black bin bags and it just poured out like a waterfall. It was disgusting. That's wow. amazing. I also read that people speed walk, uh, jockey speed walk instead of run because they don't want to put on extra muscle. Don't know if that's muscle weight. Yeah, muscle, muscle weight. Yeah. 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 Um. Is it AP McCoy? Yeah, that's yeah. he's right. one of the great jockeys of uh, time. Isn't yeah, he? I lived. I lived near him. Do you? Uh, Newmarket. Yeah. He has very intensive, um, almost scalding hot baths. Same reason yeah. I think to yeah, sweat yeah. out so much of the water in his body. He does it for a couple of hours, a couple of times a day before a race. Yeah, it's anything amazing. that makes him sweat. Like sometimes they'll yeah. commit a crime near the police, you know, just to, just to see, <laughs> see if they get away with it. That's like two stones gone. <laughs> Okay, before we move on, uh, Anne, have you got any facts you want to... Yeah, I do. Um, James's Amsterdam fog was in uh, 1893, and it was 79 people who fell into the canals mm. that one night. So watch where you're going in fog. <laughs> um, Frank Hayes, the New York Times, um, reckoned that he died just after his horse took the lead before he finished, and they put it down to his um, heavy training regime and his excitement at coming first. Oh. Which so well the horse's excitement. The um, Frank Hayes excitement. He just oh, okay. had been working so hard, and then he suddenly saw he was about to win, and that oh, may have wow. been what gave way. Um, there is a tumbler I found called Curious History. I haven't seen them before, but they are apparently one of the twenty best tumblers in the world, according to MSN. And they say <laughs> the spectators um, thought he was showing off and was riding one-handed, kind of like riding a bike with no hands. Okay. As he was going over the line, and no one realised he died wow. till till the race was over, ah. which. The javelin spinning round technique actually quite effective. The current world record was 83 meters. The guy who spun round threw 112, um, and was wow. then but was wow. then was yeah. then disallowed uh, because yeah didn't want the copycats. That was in 1966. So the the world record for javelin has been disqualified at the time. Well, that one was yeah. because you're it, not yeah. going to whirl it over your head. I don't think anyone's like done a helicopter. Got has anyone done that many before? Uh, I don't think anyone's got that yeah. far. But the thing is, every time that they change, every time they change the javelin, they, that invalidates all previous records because you're not yeah, on a level playing field. Yeah, the current well. record is with the current javelin is ninety eight point four eight meters. So still less than the guy who spun it over his head. That's amazing. So yeah, it's pretty good. Good factual nuggets. <laughs> Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to fact number two. Fact number two is my fact, and that is that some Buddhist monks run marathons to achieve enlightenment. So oh. this is a, I think, extraordinary uh, endurance test. Kind of seems like it's the greatest endurance test, uh, test on our planet, which is uh, done by these monks who are known as the marathon monks. And these marathon monks uh, achieve enlightenment by going on these huge thousand-day running challenges that go over the course of seven years. And each year, they have to do 100 days in one chunk of running a a distance per day. So 30 kilometers for the first um, 100 days. Then they take a break. Then they do another 100 days the next year in year two. They do 30 kilometers again per day. Day, uh, year three, it's 30 kilometers again, and it's 30 for four. But then for five, they do 200 days straight. On year six, it jumps up to 60 kilometers per day for 100 days straight. And then in year seven, it's 84 kilometers per day for 100 days straight. And then 30 kilometers additional 100 days after that. And if at any point during this whole process, they fail to reach the number that they're meant to reach on that target, they kill themselves. And only 46 people in the hundred years or so that this has been going on, 
had successfully completed wow. it. So they kill themselves if they haven't already died in the meantime. Exactly. But if they if they sort of if they run short by a couple of kilometers, they carry they dress in white because the white is the symbol, uh, the color of death. So they're they're dressed for death. They bring a sword and a rope. So they can either... Sounds a lot like a Ku Klux Klan. Are you sure you got your facts right? <laughs> but yeah, so they have the option of hanging themselves or of um, stabbing themselves. Um, I think they may not still kill themselves. Uh, I, I, think, I think they haven't since the, since the 19th century. I think it's been officially a bit discouraged. Yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been, that's true. The, yeah. orig- the original hard... I mean, there is an area uh, near the mountain where these monks live in Japan, which is called the Mountain Hai. I, I don't know how to pronounce that properly. It's H-I-E-I. And it's littered with unmarked graves from the people, pre-19th century wow. monks, who did not manage to finish and complete it and had to kill themselves as a, as a result. But the idea is that if you do complete it, you, you get achieve, a medal. Uh, you, get, <laughs> you get a nice little medal. You get and a pat on the back and those flowers. and they, Silver yeah. blanket around you for, for <laughs> when you finish. Well, actually, you say silver blanket, but um, one thing that I found out about monks is that they, uh, they have a technique where they can... Uh, heat themselves up. So uh, I, what? what was the? So it's a yoga technique mm. called tummo, and um, they can enter like a deep meditation. And if there's a few monks of, like around each other, mm. uh, and they can, they can have like cold, cold like blankets on them, and they can heat those blankets in a cold room. Wow! Uh, and other people would die. There have been experiments on those guys who, um, they, yeah, had sort of cold, wet blankets put on them, and they they started steaming. Yeah. Until they were completely dry. Um, there is an endurance swimmer who we've covered on QI on TV, and he is able to raise his body temperature by up to one or two degrees because he swims in very icy water. And uh, I wrote to him and asked, is this true? And one of his representatives wrote back and said, yep, that's, that's what he does. Let's go back to uh, crazy monks. Yes, yeah. Let's do that. Well, I got... I'll, I'll tell you one more thing oh, about yeah, the on. marathon oh, monks yeah. just to bring us back in, which is that... Um, uh, so 46 people only have ever completed uh, this course. I think I've got the number wrong, and it would be great to know when this practice started, because I think it's either 100 years ago, 400 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. Um, but uh, 46 people have completed it. Um, one guy did it twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's super enlightened. Yeah. How many marathons has Eddie Izzard done? Yeah, quite a lot. He's, he's, did he do? No, did he do 60? He did, no, sorry. Yeah, Eddie did 43 marathons in 51 days in 2009. Also, his marathons were presumably a lot shorter, I'm guessing. No, a marathon is always the same distance, no? Although, they're not always the same distance. Uh, the, the original distance run after the Battle of Marathon was, I think, about 22 miles. It wasn't any more than 25 either. And there was a, there was a lot of early flux. But yeah. wasn't the first marathon by this guy that... I had to run t- from Argos to, like, somewhere else. Cause uh, well, he was reporting on a, a, a battle. Right, that, oh, okay, the battle. That, that had been won. It wasn't that we've lost the battle, you need to flee immediately. It was, hey, we won, guys. Okay, it right, was so the Battle that. of Marathon. That's it. It yeah, was yeah. actually called it, it the Battle Marathon. of Marathon. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I didn't yeah, realize. Um, there is a really interesting thing about the official modern marathon length, which is that it's 26 miles and 385 yards. And it was only... It's only been the case since 1908, and it was done to please the British royal family um, because Queen Alexandra wanted the race to start on the lawn at Windsor Castle so that her children could watch from the nursery window, and then an extra mile was added to the race. And then at the end of the race, 385 yards were added so that it could finish in front of the royal box at the Olympic Stadium in White City. 
So it's all been done uh, an That's extra great. mile and 385 yards. At for Royal whim. Uh, <laughs> Here's the thing about um, crazy marathons. There was um, an Italian athlete called Mauro Prosperi, and in 1994 he was running um, a marathon in the Moroccan Sahara, but he got lost. And... Um, <laughs> When they found him uh, nine days later, he'd run 200 kilometers off course into Algeria. He'd lost 18 kilograms and only survived by drinking his own urine and eating bats that he found in an abandoned mosque. Wow. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but this guy, he... Well, um, did, he, did, he have, did he have to catch these bats? Yeah. Because that's pretty impressive as well. If he, like, after running, losing loads of weight, <laughs> drinking your own urine, Still you're like, oh, God, bats. now I've got to catch these bats. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder... Wow. He just must have thought he was having a terrible race. But he, was, he might have thought he was winning. Yeah, he thought the other guys will be here any minute. So anyway, he got a bit dispirited, as you would, um, after a few days. And he um, wrote a note to his wife. And he took mm. a pen knife from his rucksack and he, rucksack and he slit his wrists. Um, but he was so dehydrated that his, um, blood, um, his blood thickened so much it clotted the wounds so he couldn't even kill himself. And then they eventually found him. What you should have had is a, a rope or some sword. <laughs> some sword. Just a bit of sword. <laughs> I really like the story of when the modern Olympics came back, the very first marathon that was run, um, because it was a big, it was a big, it was the, I guess, big event for Greece. The idea that that is what they would win, the marathon. The marathon was so rooted right. in their culture. Um, and they had already been disappointed because they lost discus. They were furious um, because that should have been one of the events that they won. I have a quick thing about that. The guy who won the discus um, had never competed with one of their discuses before. He was an American, and he had had a practice one made in America, which was extremely heavy. And so he got to the real Olympics, completely fluffed his first two goes because he wasn't used to playing with this new discus, and then threw the winning shot. I like the way you're throwing it like a frisbee as well. (laughs) Yeah, um, well, that might be the that might be what is the sport move? The monkey crouch. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you were saying about the... the well, no, so they, they, they'd, been a, they'd been sort of shamed in the discus. They lost it to that man. Uh, and so they desperately needed the win in the marathon. So there were 17 people competing in the marathon. Um, and they had good chances of winning uh, as 13 of those athletes were from Greece. <laughs> so that was pretty high odds. Um, but it's great because very early on in the race. And it kind of shows you, it shows you a different age of sportsmen as well when you hear these stories of how more kind of like they had the right stuff and there was more grit. Uh, so the early leader in the race was actually a Frenchman runner um, but he ended up uh, pulling out of the race because he got too exhausted but mid-race while he was in the lead he made a stop at a local inn to drink a glass of cognac from his future father-in-law so he had time to stop and have two drinks and then carry on but then he dropped out because of exhaustion Uh, so the guy who ended up winning was from Greece his name was Spiridon Louise he ran it in two hours and 58 minutes and what fueled him along the way, what his kind of choice of drinks, were he had wine, milk, beer, some orange juice, and an Easter egg. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's the winner of the first ever modern Olympic an marathon. An Easter egg. An Easter Amazing. egg. Amazing. About the guy going into a pub, they used to do that in the Tour de France. Do you know that? Like, no. the, whenever the, um, the tour would go by a pub or a bar, 
and the cyclists would just all get out and en masse run into the bar and just pilfer everything they could get, all the wine and all the beers and everything like that, and they would run out again and then go. So all the people who ran bars um, that went past the Tour de France thing, they would always close down the shutters and try and stop the um, cyclists like from getting in. It's always, the, it's always the French, isn't it? Eric, has your dad ever stopped halfway through a race? For a glass of orange juice slash wine. Well, my dad's English, so no. But he stayed for uh, he stopped for a nice roast dinner. <laughs> I love as well. The uh, second and third place were won by Greece as well. But um, the third place winner um, got disqualified because he was later found to have covered part of the course in a carriage. <laughs> carriage got a lift. No one said it was against the rules. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I think we should move on. Yeah, we should yeah, wrap yeah. up on that. Um, uh, before we do, uh, Anne. Have, yeah, you, have you got anything for us? Oh, I have got so much for you. Oh, great. So, <laughs> so the man, the swimmer who can change his own body temperature is called Lewis Pugh. P-U-G-H, so that's Pugh, let's run with you. And he is the only person who has swum long distance in every ocean in the world, including the North Pole, which he did wearing goggles, speedos, and a cap. Wow. That was all. And CNN have, CNN have called him the human polar bear. So that's him. Um, the marathon running monks, um, they seem to be keeping records since 1885, which makes it 129 years. Um, 46 of them have done it since okay. then. Uh, eating bats is not good for you. They spread diseases. Guinea, actually a few weeks ago, have banned eating bats because they've got an Ebola breakout and they're blaming the bats for this. 62, pe- 62 people have died um, and they eat them either in a peppery soup or they dry them out over a fire. They advise mm. not eating bats until the Ebola has gone away. Um, in terms of eating strange things while you run, it's not quite Easter eggs, but Asim Bolt famously loves his chicken nuggets. When he On the day he won a gold medal in Beijing, they asked him how he did it, and he said he basically got up late, ate chicken nuggets, went back to bed, ate more chicken nuggets, did the race. Such a show-off. Got a Such a show-off. <laughs> got a world so- record. Apparently he got through a thousand chicken nuggets over the Beijing Olympics, which worked out a hundred a day. That's a marathon. So, that's that's think, like a marathon monk, but that's the, we, the equivalent of two actual chickens, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> that has not been fact checked. If you're listening, <laughs> the man, that's for you. <laughs> okay, on to fact number three, and that is yours, James. Okay, my fact this week is. The Slovakian and Slovenian embassies in Washington meet once a month to exchange wrongly addressed mail. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Isn't that great? I just, that, this came from a website, um, slovakrepublic.org. Okay. I think it seems to be pretty kosher. This Slovene, uh, Slovak website have got a special section of their website saying, we are not Slovenia. <laughs> and they've got a load of um, examples. Apparently, George W. Bush once um, said, the only thing I know about Slovakia is what I learned firsthand from your foreign minister who came to Texas. And their foreign minister had never been to Texas. It was the um, Slovenian foreign minister who'd been there before. Oh, Typical George W. But it's, it's not just him. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi uh, introduced Slovenian Prime Minister Anton Rop to the crowd of journalists saying, I'm very happy to be here today with the Prime Minister of, Slo- Prime minister of Slovakia. So it's very easily done. It does happen for these countries that there's just, we put, um, we find that we keep seeing examples of people putting minimum effort into actually working out who they are, what they're, like, there's that, remember that famous incident with the national anthem for Kazakhstan? Yeah. That's, you know, up on the podium, this girl had won gold medal, and then they play the Borat version. (laughs) 
oh of the national God, anthem. No way. And he sings in, in, you know, the lyrics are in Kazakhstan. The lyrics are like, um, we have the cleanest prostitutes in the region yeah. or something Kazakhstan's like that. prostitutes are the cleanest in the region, except, of course, for Turkmenistan. <laughs> Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, you very nice place. Come grasp the mighty penis of our leader from junction with testes to tip off its face. That's, that's she stood incredible. There. Going back to the Slovak thing, in the Slovak culture, there was a Slovak cultural group in America and they had a big sort of map of their country and there was an old guy came in and uh, he was looking around and they asked what he was doing and he was trying to find his, um, his grandfather's village because his grandfather was from there. Uh, but then his wife came over to him. And she looked at the sign and said, "You're not Slovak. You're Slovenian." <laughs> <laughs> so this guy got his whole life thinking he was Slovakian, and he was actually Slovenian. <laughs> if they don't know, how can you know the rest of the world know? Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's dear. a great story. Yeah, I I read about um, these. There was a new couple. I think they just got married, and um, they wanted to get a flight to Sydney. Uh-huh. Uh, and they bought the flight, and it was a lot cheaper than they thought. And uh, when they got there, they found out that they'd actually gone to Sydney, Nova Scotia, oh. by accident. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, ra- unlike your. You're from Sydney, aren't you? Dan? I am. Yeah. Uh, unlike your Sydney, this is a former mining town with a population of twenty six thousand and eighty three, and one of the highest unemployment rates in Canada. Yeah, but it does have a very nice opera house. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this couple, they said, oh, we're just going to make the most of it. And they were interviewed in the newspaper. <laughs> and they said they were looking forward to looking at the pickup trucks and eating the local lobster. Brilliant. Wow. That's fantastic. Well, that's nice. Like, yeah, uh, that's positivity. Really... Yeah. Okay, so uh, I was looking at other mix-ups. And um, I saw a newspaper story. Um, the FDA in America was warning people not to uh, mix up the prescription eye drops called Durazol with the um, acid-containing wart remover, Duracell. Apparently, these are two, um, two medicines with very similar names, and people have been putting this acid in their eyes thinking God. it was um, eye drops. Oh, my God. And that got me to thinking if there's any other like, medicines with similar names and what could happen. Yes. And I found a brilliant list online of um, commonly confused medicines. <laughs> so there's, um, there's a drug called Allegra, which is a drug often used for the temporary relief of runny nose, and people keep getting that mixed up with Viagra. Ah. That's their excuse. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's something that actually helps to cook um, carrots and uh, potatoes. It's called Vegasil. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Some people confuse it. And there was another thing called uh, Beano. This was a company name, and it was an anti-gas thing. If you've got a bit of gas, you take this Beano, and it makes you feel better. But people were mistaking it for B and O, which is belladonna and opium. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and anything to add? Um, just another Slo- Slovakia, Slovenia. Um, they've basically got really similar flags as well, which doesn't help. They've got a white, blue, and red stripe with a shield on the front. Shields are different, everything else is the same. Um, so Slovenia have done a contest to find a new flag, but I don't think they've adopted it yet, um, which will distinguish them. And then there's a professor um, from the University of... The University of... Le- Ljubljana. The, uni- the University of Ljubljana, who said he reckons the problem with the confusion is that Slovenia hasn't got a brand. Finland has Nokia and Sweden has IKEA, and they need their own brand. So someone suggested Slovenia becomes the one-hour country, because you can get everywhere within an hour. It's very small. Oh. <laughs> and then um, with um, confusions as well, there was that thing at the um, London Olympics when the North Korean women's football team walked off because they showed the South Korean flag. 
not the North Korean. Ah, that's that, very yeah, embarrassing. Did not go down well, uh, welcoming them with the wrong flag. And just at the end, Urbino, um, there was a second Dennis the Menace who made his debut in America. Um, of course, literally within five yeah. days of, of being debuted. Yeah, the, so America's Dennis, Dennis the Menace. And they had a very similar look, and they were done completely independently of each other. It's amazing. It was like Deep Impact and Armageddon. Remember the Volcano case? and uh, Dante's Peak? Yep. Any others? Um, Genesis and Exodus. The bands. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to our final fact of the show, and we come on to Mr. Andy Murray. Andy. Okay, my fact is, in the 18th century, there were genuine medicines called Allen's Nipple Liniment, Grimston's Eye Snuff, Miller's Worm Plums, and Italian Bosom Friend. <laughs> Do you know what was in any of them? Or? A couple, well, somebody said that Grimston's Eye Snuff was just pepper. Just black pepper ground up. Um, but, it, uh, I mean, a lot of patent medicines really consisted only of sort of 50% alcohol. Yeah. So they were... And a lot of them... We call them patent medicines, of course. All these fantastically named uh, old Hamlin's Wizard Oil. Just, you know, beautifully named. Oh, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> um, sugar plums for worms. Uh, aromatic lozenges of steel. Cocking's cough lozenges. Gingerbread worm cakes. There were some of them that did have active ingredients. There was one called Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup. Uh, and that was aimed mainly at babies and children. And it contained a full gram of morphine per ounce. Uh, and Cop's Baby Friend, that was another baby one. Cop's Baby Friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, the label there boasted 8.5% alcohol and one-eighth grain sulfate of opium per ounce. And oh, that was marketed to, to, help, to help babies sleep. Amazing. You could you could buy uh, heroin, couldn't you, in the First World War to send to troops yes, on the could. front line? Yeah. You could buy it in Harrods, I think. Really? I think so. Still can, I, I think. <laughs> I'm not certain. Yeah, but behind Harrods. We should fact <laughs> <laughs> Um, Has anyone heard about during the Middle Ages when um, uh, there was uh, the Black Death uh, that farts in a jar was a thing that was prescribed <laughs> to people? No. Uh, yeah, the idea was that if you conditioned um, the smell of something quite disgusting to your nose, by the time if there was an outbreak of Black Death around you, you would become accustomed to that kind of smell. So it kind of made you immune to what right. was going to happen. So you would go to the doctor and they would give you a fart in a jar. I don't know if it was your own fart or if it was a pre-packaged fart and you would go home with it and then you would, you would rip open the lid, have a sniff. In case of emergency, out. break glass. <laughs> <laughs> break wind. <laughs> That's incredible. What is that? Like, like an early version of the vaccination idea? Sort uh, of. Or like taking small doses of a poison to build up a resistance, which yeah, some Roman build, emperors did. Yes, exactly. It's that, to build up the resistance. Um, <laughs> You're only putting up resistance to your own farts. Well, it, it, it's fair enough. When I had... Um, <laughs> which I've been doing for years. When I had my appendix taken out, um, they cut the intestine by accident and stomach acid was pouring out Ooh. and I was digesting myself, right? So I was in hospital for like three months and you, I, you know, I wasn't allowed to eat anything. So, because I wasn't allowed to eat anything, because nothing worked, I also couldn't fart. So, but there was gas trapped inside. And the nurses did say, you're allowed to leave or eat when you can fart. And it took me two months to essentially release any gas. And when it came out, it was the worst thing I have ever <laughs> smelt, ever. <laughs> but what was also really horrible was that I had to call a nurse to make her smell it. <laughs> Which is the opposite. I have a feeling you didn't really have to call her. 
She's, she's probably already ringing your taxi. <laughs> she's probably got a matching story about the worst thing she's ever smelled. <laughs> and he called me in to smell it. It wasn't necessary. <laughs> the other cool thing about a lot of these medicines that I really like is that um, beyond all the kind of crazy names they had, some of them probably worked better than a lot of medical alternatives which were being touted by uh, real doctors, uh, doctors with medical degrees at the time. Right. And that's why a lot of medicines, things like homeopathy, in the 18th century, homeopathy was your best bet because all the other medicines were more likely to kill you and likely to kill you quite fast. Mm. Um, so that, I think, has accounted for a lot of uh, alternative and complementary medicine today still being popular is that it, it had an initial lead. Yeah. They used to um, call them snake oil salesmen. They still yeah. do a little bit, don't they? Yeah. And I remember reading that um, actually snake oil is good for you. If someone sold you some snake oil, um, it contains um, 20% of omega-3s, um, which is a thing that people like to take. It's supposed to be good for your heart. And um, salmon, uh, which is one thing that people do take for omega-3, only contains 18%. So actually snake oil would do you a bit of good. Mm-hmm. The thing is, all these medicines is trial and error. So, you know, at the a, at a beginning of medicine time, you know, trying some honey with hedgehog hair... You, you never know. You'd be like, yeah, just try that. Yes. Yeah. For and your you're eyes. desperate probably as well. Like. Yeah. But that's the thing. When you're in pain, you're a little bit delirious. And you'll turn to your in- you know, your friend or your, or your internet friend just to go, what, what do I take? And they'll just say, oh, yeah, just do that. And you will do it. Yeah. There's, um, there's a group of people in the Amazon who... Um, they like to put snakes down their tr- trousers to bite their penises, which gives them length and directions. And I wonder how they found that out. They're really just trying to cure their runny noses. That's what they claim. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was reading a lot about placebos in relation to sort of, you know, this kind of medicine. Um, yes. This is incredible. There was a drug introduced um, in the 70s called cimetidine, which uh, cured 80% of stomach ulcers. Um, now, as time passed, it fell to just 50% of stomach ulcers which it cured. Hmm. And this seems to have occurred after the introduction of ranitidine, which is a competing and it was supposedly a better, more effective drug. So people think that the placebo effect of the initial drug stopped working because doctors knew there was another supposedly better drug, and that's why the success rate fell. Uh Because doctors uh, have also been tested giving medicine to patients, and half of them have said, I think this is a really good drug, I'm very excited about it, it's shown really well in trials, and half of them have said, I'm not sure about this, uh, but take it anyway, see if it does any good. Patients reported much less pain with the first sample of doctors. Mm. Same pill. It's incredible. Wow, yeah. And placebo injections are more effective than placebo pills because it's a more dramatic intervention. It feels... People, culturally, people think that. I wonder if placebo works with all of these really weird things that they did in the, like, the Middle Ages and stuff like that. So, like for instance, in the 14th century, one, re- one way that you could cure impotence was to wear your trousers on your head for 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to imagine the placebo effect working there. It's hard to imagine finding anyone who wants to have sex with you after you've been walking around the village all day with your trousers on your head. Speak for yourself, Andy. <laughs> the placebo effect doesn't always work, though. Um, I was reading about um, Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who spent the last day of his life laying the sun covered in cow dung, convinced it would cure him, and it didn't, it didn't work. Um, cure him from what? Friendship? Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> that, that worked. That's lovely. Um, okay, Anne, uh, have we got anything right or wrong? You want to uh, add? Perfectly right. Um, just to add that it was until 1916 that you could buy c- cocaine and heroin at Harrods. Um, and the, I don't know if this is a joke or not, but in the article it said you could buy gift packs of both the Send soldiers. 
Yeah. Wow, I think that's true. Yeah. Nice little Christmas gift. Um, I had fun while you were talking, watching the weirdest YouTube video I've, I've ever seen about how to bottle your farts, so thanks for that. Um, <laughs> according to N Maniac, the way to do it is, is to do it while you're in the bath, because that's how you can best direct said fart to jar. But what I quite liked was he began his video by washing out the jar um, before he put the <laughs> farts in. Oh, yeah, you don't want to get that jar dirty. <laughs> yeah, I just want to quickly add that from the website that I got the farts in a jar from, uh, there was a, a line at the bottom talking about, because um, it gave examples of how it was done and so on, and it just says, sounds funny now, but the plague was no joke. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, that's it for another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. That's all of our facts. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us to question us about anything, you can get us all on Twitter. Uh, I'm on at Shryland, James. I am at Eggshaped. Anne? Uh, Miller underscore Anne. Andy? You're at on. Andrew Hunter M. And special guest, honorary elf, Eric Lampert. Yeah. <laughs> it's my name, Eric Lampert. At Eric Lampert. <laughs> at Eric Lampert. And of course, if you want to explore any of the topics that we've spoken about a bit more, you can head to the qi.com slash podcast page where we're going to have lots of links. We're going to have videos. We're going to have pictures. Anything that we've spoken about hopefully will be up there for you to explore more. And we're going to be back again next week with another podcast. So we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>